Well, over the last seven weeks, we've been talking about sharing our faith, helping others to know Jesus. We've entitled our series, People Last Forever, for they do. And this evening, I've got one more installment. I want us to look at an episode from the cross, beginning in Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. A strange thing happened on the way to heaven. That's where Jesus was headed. Work your way through chapter 23 and you'll follow Jesus from Pilate's judgment hall to the cross on Mount Calvary. By the time we get to our text, his mission is about finished. The price will soon be paid. Jesus was sent to do the Father's will, then bear the sins of the world. In fact, in the next few verses, the weight of sin will come crashing down on his innocent shoulders. The sky grows dark. The temple veil is torn in two. The lamb receives his load. For the crime of sin, all sin, every sin, an executioner named death will pull the switch. And the current of sin will pass through Jesus' sinless body. When Jesus commits his spirit back to his Father in heaven, sin's debt will have been paid in full. And evidence of his triumph is what follows both in heaven and on earth. The spiritual and physical realms are served notice that the keys of life are now in new hands. Life and death are under new management. Satan has been trounced and Jesus is now victorious. You see, Jesus first proves to spiritual principalities and powers his victory. While a few brave disciples lay his body in a borrowed tomb, Jesus' spirit dive-bombed into paradise. There he declared himself to be the promised Messiah, the victor over sin. He swept up his Old Testament followers and he ushered them into heaven, into God's very presence. The spiritual realm was forever altered that day. The torn veil in the temple was a symbol that all the barriers between God and humanity had been removed. The coast was now clear. The door stood wide open. The only issue remaining between us and God is our loyalty to Jesus. And in 72 hours, earth also gets the news of Jesus' triumph. The stone gets rolled away. And His body bounds from the grave with a surge of new life. Death can't hold Him. The grave has no claim on Him. After His resurrection, Jesus will linger on earth for nearly six weeks. He provides instruction to reassure His dialing disciples. 
He gives them undeniable evidence to provoke faith in future generations. After 40 days of infallible proofs, the Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven. And this is why I say, at the time of our passage, Jesus is on the cross, but he is on the way to heaven. His work is near completion, just a couple more strokes, and the artist will finish his masterpiece of salvation. The end of Jesus' long road from heaven to earth and then back again is now in sight. He is shedding his blood. He is laying down his tired in his broken body. Jesus is on his last leg. He can see the finish line. How strange that in the process of saving the whole world, Jesus reaches out to a single soul. A criminal, no less. A thief. You would think an artist putting the final touches on a painting wouldn't want to be bothered. Not now. Oh, but not Jesus. You see, a strange thing happens on the way to heaven. Jesus takes somebody with him. Imagine what's at stake on the cross. Our Savior, our Lord Jesus, is securing salvation for the entire world, for all time. All people, past peoples, future peoples, everyone who will ever gain access to heaven will be there because of what Jesus does in these six hours on the cross. There has never been a more decisive moment in human history than on that day, on that hill in Jerusalem. And God was in control of everything that occurred that day. In those six hours, dozens of biblical prophecies were fulfilled. Every move that Jesus made, every word that Jesus spoke was foreshadowed by Scripture. God oversaw His Son hanging from those Roman gallows. This is why our text seems so strange and so out of place. Why does the holy sacrifice ordained by God, even planned before creation, why does it get interrupted by a conversation between two common criminals? It's sort of like a passing train in the middle of a wedding ceremony. That unwanted two to the horn. The conversation between these two men seems to be an unwanted interruption. I read verses 39 to 41 and I'm tempted to shout out to these two thieves, Hey guys, how about piping it down so the Savior can finish? Yet here is a picture of the heart of God that we need to see. Jesus is focused on the world that He wants to save, that He has been sent to save. I believe that on the cross, in His Spirit, in His deity, Jesus saw every face of every person who has or will ever live. He died to save the whole world. Jesus is fighting battles His onlookers know nothing about. Yet in the midst of it all, a thief asks to go to heaven. And rather than view it as a bother, Jesus grants him his request. Imagine the scene later that day. The scene in paradise. Where the author of salvation, where the Lord of glory, where the king of the universe, where the darling of heaven, the Savior himself, crosses the finish line to the cheers of 10 billion saints and angels. And a convict just executed for his crimes? 
is allowed to tag along, to share in Jesus' triumph. The Savior finishes His work of eternal salvation with a thief by His side. Here's a quote that gets at what I want to say tonight. Jesus was crucified not in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. We tend to categorize the crucifixion as a religious event. The crucifix has become a religious symbol. In fact, the only time people tend to talk about the cross is at church. Apparently, church is where the cross belongs. For most people, the cross is an artifact to be revered by spiritual folks, but I don't think so. The cross was a means to an end. It was never to be an end in itself. Jesus wasn't crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. The cross isn't to be hung on a wall or decorated or turned into a relic. The cross was a tool in the hand of a loving God who wanted to save sinners, even people like thieves. The point of Calvary's cross was and is to get sinners to heaven. I love the incident in our text. At first it seems so out of place. We see the crucifixion of Jesus as sacred, as a sacred event. We're in awe of what happened on the cross. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're amazed at the mysterious interaction going on between the Father and the Son. We're hushed by the holiness of the moment. We wonder at the transaction that's being finalized. But this event hammers home a vital truth to us. It snaps us back to the purpose of the cross. For in the midst of that high and holy moment, Jesus snatches up a rough and tumble criminal by the scruff of the neck and He takes that convict with Him to heaven. Imagine that. Here's the bottom line to the work of Jesus on the cross. It takes a thief. Realize in our text, the Greek word that's translated criminal, it means one who uses violence to rob openly. Understand, the guy that Jesus saved that day wasn't some white-collar criminal. He wasn't convicted for credit card theft. He was guilty of armed robbery. Here was a guy, an author of murder and mayhem. This fellow was a bandit, a desperado. He may have popped a cop in the process. We don't know. I believe he was chosen by God to be next to Jesus Because he was the most unlikely to go where Jesus was headed. To heaven. In fact, look at his partner in crime. The other crucified criminal. He taunts Jesus. He has no respect at all. He's rebellious to the end. Now hanging on either side of Jesus. I get the impression that these two men hung together in life. They both were unsavory characters. This thief deserved death, but Jesus gave him paradise. And why? Well, it had nothing to do with the work of his hands. This man's hands were nailed to a piece of wood. Couldn't move his hands. Nor did it have anything to do with the places he might go to spread God's kindness. 
His feet were also nailed to that board. They weren't going anywhere. It certainly wasn't because he decided to join and get involved in a church. When you're nailed to a cross, you can't go to church. There was only one thing this boy could do, and that was to repent and to believe in Jesus for his salvation. That was the only thing he could do, but it was the only thing he was required to do. You see, we all come to God the same way. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, Ask this, this thief what made Good Friday so good, and he would have sung the praises of God's glorious grace. I often think of this boy's parents. His life of crime had burned any bridges that previously existed between he and his folks. You know it had. I doubt that they were even at his crucifixion. They probably stayed home to spare themselves the shame and the embarrassment of their son. And unless they were on sight, close enough to hear the private conversation he had with Jesus, they would have gone to bed that night and every other night for that matter, assuming their son was frying in the flames of hell. This is why unless you're there in a person's final moments, you really don't know what occurs between them and Jesus. You really don't know. You see, the thief on the cross forever proves that there is such a thing as a deathbed conversion. I remember a funeral I once officiated. James sang at it, which tells you there wasn't very many people there. In fact, sadly, pathetically, only three people showed up. A man's funeral and only three people showed up. The deceased's mother, his sister, and his sister's son, who I am sure was forced to be there. The sparse crowd was evidence of the irresponsible and selfish life this man had lived. He died from cirrhosis of the liver, literally drank himself to death. Imagine the pain he caused the folks who loved him. But what all the people over the years who had rubbed dirty shoulders with this fellow failed to see was what I had the privilege of witnessing. Just two days earlier, he called me. I paid him a visit. And I asked him if he wanted to make Jesus Christ the Lord of his life. He did. He made Jesus the Lord of what life he had left. And he received God's forgiveness that day. And an immediate peace settled over this dying man. His attitude changed instantly. In a moment, God worked a miracle and took a criminal to paradise. You know, I've heard it said, God has included one deathbed conversion in the Bible to hold out hope, but only one, so as not to produce a false hope. I agree with that. God is gracious. God is kind. God is merciful. If there is breath, friend, there is hope. Yet no one who has heard the gospel once is guaranteed a second opportunity. Here's what I'm trying to say. Today, Good Friday, Today, priests and bishops and archbishops in huge and ornate cathedrals are parading down church aisles wearing pious robes and carrying ceremonial crosses. They're performing their Good Friday duties faithfully and formally. But such a priest would never do so with a disheveled homeless man by his side or with a broken, humbled prostitute in tow. 
or with a convicted criminal fresh from the chain gang attached to his hip. No, these kinds of people would be a distraction to the clergy. They would interfere with the pastor or priest's ecclesiastical work, but not the Savior of the world and the work that we truly celebrate today. For in saving the world, even on His way to heaven, Jesus took a thief. I think of it from the Savior's perspective. Jesus might have been embarrassed to do the work of salvation without saving someone in particular as it was being done. He never did anything theoretically. He did it practically. He had to take somebody with him when he was saving the world. He knew that eventually you and I and millions more would join the ranks of the redeemed. That his sacrifice would pay dividends for years and centuries and millenniums to come. But Jesus wanted to cross the finish line with some immediate spoils. He didn't want to have to wait a second to see his work of salvation bear fruit. The Savior desired something to show for his efforts. And so he took with him a thief to heaven. And he considered it a sweet victory. Could God have done anything more to prove how much He loves the lost and the last and the least among us? That in saving the world, Jesus took a common criminal? Realize, Jesus isn't enamored with crosses today. They hold no sentimental attraction for Him. It was the spoils of salvation that made the toil of salvation so worthwhile. The cross was just a tool to save people. The Savior refused to enter heaven empty-handed. He wanted something to show for His work. And this is why a strange thing happened on the way to heaven. The Savior of all mankind took a thief. Here's another way to think about it. Jesus hangs on the cross. Two criminals hang next to Him. All three men are just hanging there together. If Jesus is really into salvation, why doesn't He invite the people with whom He's hanging to go to heaven with Him? For Jesus to have left a willing soul on the cross, it would have been a mockery of all that He stood for, of all that His grace came to accomplish. It would have been inappropriate for the Savior to arrive in heaven all by Himself. And I think the same should be true of you and me. Do you really want to go to heaven all by your lonesome? What about the guys you hang out with every day? But pastor, those guys are bandits and thugs and criminals. They don't deserve God's love. And neither do you. When will we get it? Being a criminal simply means we're a candidate for God's grace. Oh, but I'm too busy with church stuff and Bible study to carry on a conversation with such people. If that's the case, you've got some serious priority problems. You've hung the cross in a cathedral between two candles. You've forgotten it belongs not in a church, not in some religious setting, but on a hill in plain view of everyone next to a public road among sinners. That's where the cross belongs. Here's what I think. 
Tonight's text, this incident with the thief, proves that God wants folks to go to heaven in bunches. Even the Savior took somebody with Him. Here's the place for you and I to start. What about your family who needs Jesus? Your spouse or your children or your uncles and aunts or your nieces and nephews? Have you given up on the people with whom you hang out? You remember the story in Acts 16 when the earthquake rocked the jail cell there in Philippi? Paul and Silas were set free. And when the warden of the prison saw the miracle, he asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? But here's what I want you to notice. The focus of Paul's answer wasn't just the jailer. Paul also included the people with whom he hung out, his own family. Paul replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That doesn't mean that the jailer decided for his family. Like the criminal on the cross, everyone has to make their own choice. But God likes to save people in bunches. We're told Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Paul preached to the jailer and his posse and they all responded with faith. Hey, when all receive, all get saved. If you're picking grapes from a vine, do you pick them one by one? Do you? No, it's better to pick them in bunches, isn't it? Grapes come in clusters, and so do people. When God saves one, why not save the people around Him too? Why not save the gang with the gang member? Why not save the team with the teammate? Why not save the jailer's family with the jailer? Why not save the criminal even as you're saving the whole world? Salvation is a bandwagon. And as it rolls along, God wants anybody and everybody to jump on board. There's another story I'm sure you remember. A wild man, full of demons, man. Tortured, tormented man. He was held up in the caves east of the Sea of Galilee. Here was another unlikely candidate for salvation. In fact, at one point, his family and friends tried to tie him down to protect him from himself. But when the demons inflicted him, he would break his shackles and restraints. It became impossible for the man to live in society. And so he roamed the barren hillside by his lonesome. That is, until Jesus met him. Jesus cast out the demons and set the man free. Gloriously free. And what was said of this man afterward is the perfect picture of what Jesus does for everyone who trusts in Him. They found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in His right mind. That's what happened to me when I sat down at the feet of Jesus. He clothed me in His righteousness, put me in my right mind. Here's a man who was gloriously and miraculously saved he had experienced a personal miracle in his life. It's no wonder when Jesus boards the boat to leave, the man pleads to go with him. But that's when Jesus instructs his new disciple. He says, no, you need to return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. You see, rather than go overseas, the man was told to go and oversee the salvation of those nearby. When salvation comes like a wildfire, God wants it to spread to those who are closest to you. 
You know, Christians today, they talk about our personal salvation, that God has a personal plan for your life, and He does. But sometimes we say it as if all God cares about is me and my welfare, my direction in life, and my home in heaven end up God's sole priorities. How foolish is that? No, if Jesus took time out from saving the world to take a thief to heaven, then how can my relationship with God ignore the salvation of the people around me? If I'm so busy with my life and with my serving God that I ignore the people I hang out with, then something is terribly wrong. Friends, let's not forget that people last forever. A strange thing happened on Jesus' way to heaven. He took a thief. And the same strange thing should be happening on our way to heaven. Why would God save one when He can save two? Why just you if He can save the people with you? Don't forget, God likes to save people in bunches. Here's one truth we learn from the cross of Jesus Christ. In saving the world, Jesus took a thief.